And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Uh, well, Daddy O, <laughs> doing better than last week. I just want to give a really big thank you to our listeners who are the most understanding, amazing people. We didn't do an episode last week. Uh, We took a mental health break because I had a breakdown on the couch and it was all right. I'm doing better, but uh, we are back and ready for action, ready to have a blast. Um, And why, why are you looking at me like that? Is that a beatnik slang dictionary? Maybe. Are you trying to like <laughs> on the fly insert beatnik phrases into your into what you're saying? I'm not that much of a square. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to have a hard time trying to do that on the fly. Listen, I'm a cool cat. I'm down and hip. I'm with the jazz, man. Let's go into it. What are we watching today? <laughs> So today we are watching (laughs) Bucket of Blood from 1959, directed by Roger Corman. It is beat. uh, It is themed around the beat scene of the late 1950s, um, which was kind of like the the cool, rebellious, teen rebel leftist culture movement (laughs) of like the time. Um, the hipsters of their day. Yeah, it was quite boss. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk a bit about what beatniks are? Yeah, I think we can noodle it out. So um, the look you are giving me. I don't be such a cube. <laughs> <laughs> Is a cube worse than a square? Yeah, because <laughs> um, you're in three dimensions. You know. <laughs> I see. Um, yeah, I mean, what's funny about beatniks to me is that like the stereotypical image of one has somehow managed to continue as a stock character for as long as it has. Like the fact that like, and I know that this isn't exactly a modern reference either, but the fact that like Max and his friends go to like a beat club in like the late nineties, extremely goofy sequel Mm -hmm. or whatever is wild uh, to me. Um, But yeah, if you're, if you're not sure uh, what the hell we're talking about, if you're not getting what we're putting down, if you've ever seen like a stock comedy character of like a guy all in black with a goatee and like a beret, uh, you know, smoking a cigarette and like saying spoken word poetry over like a bo- someone doing a bongo drum, like that's that's the stereotype beatnik. Um, yeah, it's a gas. But as <laughs> with many things, there's much more to it than the stereotypes. So I'll turn it over to English major Sarah over here. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's dig into it. So the beat poets, the beat generation, um, I think you can kind of tie down to three major guys. There's more, but I'm just going to be talking about these three guys. Jack Kerouac, William S. Burroughs, and Allen Ginsberg. Mm-hmm. So they all met in the mid-1940s, and they would 
uh, develop this kind of literary style, subculture, uh, and, and genre themes in literature that would be kind of described as the beat movement. You can see how it grows out of feelings from like the lost generation that had Hemingway and Gertrude Stein coming out of that like disillusionment of the world wars and just a heck of a lot of influence of jazz, Mm. which is why some of those um, slang words, you might go like, well, wait a minute. Haven't I really heard that with like being associated with like African-American vernacular English? And it's like, yes. Because for a very long time, white people have been stealing slang. It was Kerouac who came up with the phrase beat generation. Uh, and by that, he doesn't mean like beats as in music. He means it in the sense of like people who are beaten down hmm. and down on their luck. Hmm. I didn't know that, actually. I always associated it as like musical beats. Uh, well, like I can see where that would come from because of the tie to jazz music. But um no, it's definitely more like being like, ooh, I want in on like the the fun stuff that happens with sex and drugs and poverty. Mm. You know, the very fun experience of poverty. Right. Hanging around with the common people. Mm-hmm. So Kerouac would describe um, this beat generation as, quote, a generation of crazy, illuminated hipsters suddenly rising and roaming America, serious, bumming and hitchhiking everywhere, ragged, beatific, and beautiful in an ugly, graceful new way. Mm. And it's very humorous to me that he uses the phrase hipster to describe these people, because that is 40 it odd years, 40 to 50 years before I would hear it in university. So these people are down and out, they're beaten down, but they are still full of like intense conviction is kind of how he would describe these people. They aren't juvenile delinquents, but um, he uses the phrase, uh, they are rather solitary Bartleby's. Do you know what Bartleby the Scrivener is? Yes. Okay. For those who aren't familiar... Bartleby the Scrivener is a short story by Herman Melville from like 1853. And it's basically this guy named Bartleby who works in like an office. And um, when he's asked to do things, he replies, I'd prefer not to. And so that idea of like you're having to engage in the contemporary culture, but would prefer not to. Mm. Like you're there in body, but not in spirit rebelling in spirit because you would prefer not to and it's not that you are like wanting to blow stuff up you're just like i would prefer not to do this yeah it's like if there was a spectrum that went from ernest hemingway (laughs) to dennis hopper and you (laughs) threw like a dart right in the middle of that spectrum i feel like you hit beat generation sure like like it's halfway between lost generation and the hippie movement but like the connection there is it's all counterculture and the counterculture part of it tends to still be very similar absolutely no you hit the nail on the head um because literally like without the beatniks you don't get to the psychedelic era of the 60s Mm -hmm. um but it also is comes out of the lost generation with hemingway I think it's also like kind of interesting with the beat generation is that like that's wholly American 
Mm. The Lost Generation were Americans in Europe. Yeah. I think it's very interesting for that. So there's three main things that are kind of pointed out with the beat generation of sex, drugs, and I'll say poverty, but it's really like anti-consumerism is kind sure. of what they mean by poverty. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not being part of the system, exactly. man. Um, you can kind of tie those to these three individuals. So <laughs> each one is one of these things. Basically. Um, that's why I chose these three. So starting with William S. Burroughs, he's an author and he is also known for being a heroin addict. And I bring this up because a lot of his work is tied to his experience with that addiction. Um, his very first novel was uh, 1953's Junkie. It was semi-autobiographical. Um, but his third novel, which came out in 1959 and probably made the biggest splash, is Naked Lunch. Now, um, Naked Lunch is um, very experimental. They're more than vignettes, but shorter than a collection of short stories. Um, and it's very like a stream of consciousness kind of story. Is Naked Lunch with like the cut up technique? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you can read these vignettes in any order. And when it came out, it was considered obscene, both in language and content, because there was sadism, there was discussion of sexuality, uh, there was addiction, there was child murder, there was pedophilia. It was a big uh, controversy hmm. when it came out, but uh, it's also like one of the last times that there was a trial about obscene literature. Right. Now, the other thing that Burroughs kind of points to is, besides being a heroin addict, the other thing in his life that he points to as having a major impact on his life and his inspiration for writing is that in 1951, he uh, killed his second wife, uh, Joan Vollmer, and he points to that as well as his addiction and using writing to move through those things as big inspirations for how writing is like magic and having these short bursts of vignettes as short spells to kind of get things out of your system. Men will do anything to avoid going to therapy. <laughs> you could say that about everyone on this list, my love. Next, I'm going to talk about Ellen Ginsberg. Are you going to just like, like, just just like mosey on past William Esperos killed his wife? Because I feel like that's a heck of a thing to just sort of <laughs> drop and, and then just leave well, there as a little breadcrumb. I, uh, it's not incredibly relevant, but to put it out there. So he had uh, his first story um, when telling police is that he, uh, they were down in Mexico and um, he was trying to do like a, a William Tell kind of stunt with his revolver. Uh, everyone was drunk, of course, um, and that stunt did not go well. Later, he had a story that he was showing the revolver to his friends, dropped it, and it went off and shot Joan. So he was in Mexico and he kind of stayed around there because he was tried in absentia for manslaughter and murder in the States, and so he did end up having to serve two years. So Allen Ginsberg... Um, he is an author, more specifically a poet, and he is where the sex comes in with okay. the tying it to beatnik 
or the beat generation. They didn't really like the term beatnik. And the piece of literature I'm going to call out here is Ginsburg's Howl, which is a very long poem. came out in 1956, and it also had an obscenity trial because it uses sexual and obscene language and has many descriptions of sexual acts with many different genders. And perhaps most galling of all has descriptions of casual sex. Um, one particular great quote from it that I really enjoy is um, Ginsburg praising the kind of guy who lounged hungry and lonesome seeking jazz or sex or soup. <laughs> Howl is wild. When it came out, uh, Ginsburg's publisher had to face charges of publishing pornography, but they were able to fight against it because of uh, a judge ruling like, but there's something of like social value here. So mm. we're going to make this go away. <laughs> and Ginsburg in Howl, like it's all a poem, but it uses what's called spontaneous prose, which Ginsburg borrowed basically that style from Kerouac. Jack Kerouac is known for that spontaneous prose. Um, that's his bread and butter. Um, he is an author uh, probably best known for 1957's On the Road, where different uh, beat figures, uh, including Ginsburg and Burroughs, are featured in dif as different characters in the book. Uh, Kerouac himself is uh, Sal Paradise in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um so while it was yeah right uh so while it was published in 1957 it, and this is my nom de plume johnny cool that's exactly it um there's someone whose name is carlos marx like <laughs> we're all having fun here right while on the road was published in 1957 it came out of a lot of notebooks that he kept through the 40s and he would type on the road over three weeks on a single roll of paper on his typewriter, um, which might sound weird, but it's because that's the performance part of the piece. And indeed, the, the beat generation, uh, as Kerouac named it, uh, was very much focused on um, trying to bring into literature the improvisational fluidity that you would see in jazz, mm. and performance is a big part of that. Now, before I move on to um, more of the Beat Generation, I just want to describe On the Road for you a little bit. Sure, yeah. So it follows Sal Paradise and his friend Dean Moriarty mm -hmm. um, traveling across the U.S. through different times in their life, bumming on couches, uh, being on drugs, having sex, listening to jazz all along the way, knocking up different women and then leaving them and then going back to their wives and knocking them up and then being like, I'm out of here and going back on the road because the road calls to them, Ben. The road is where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I feel like Ginsburg <laughs> and Kerouac and Burroughs like are like two things. One, they are well in the category of what we call today problematic faves. Um, and the other is, if you have been to university, you have guaranteed to have met a guy who takes himself way too seriously who loves these dudes. Yes. Yes. So the beat generation, you can see having these defining characteristics about being being anti-consumerist, anti-materialist, uh, wanting to like question authority, 
being like anti-war, anti-authority, trying to expand your mind through marijuana or other drugs. Um, and even later on, getting into uh, Buddhism or other Eastern religions and trying to bring in aspects of that. Yeah, which is all like stuff that then bled into the hippie movement. Yeah. I did read somewhere someone commenting on the Beat Generation saying like, by today's standards, it's very mild rebellion, but the 1950s were like such a button down consumerist conformist time that even like a little rebellion was viewed as like the end of civilization as we know it. Absolutely. So as I mentioned before, beatnik is kind of the term that like mainstream society put onto this group. They were Mm -hmm. like, we're the beat generation. And the moms and pops at home were like, well, you're just beatniks. Mm -hmm. That stereotype and stereotypical look would typically be the goatees that you described, um, dark rimmed, round glasses, berets, playing the bongos. Uh, For women, it was often straight cropped hair, um, black tights. Mm -hmm. And so at best, these people, the stereotype when shown in media would be like a farce, a comedic figure, something to kind of laugh at. Yeah. You could even point to Shaggy from Scooby-Doo as being a beatnik. Yeah. And like that stereotype that you're talking about, like, like it's one of those fascinating things. I'm always fascinated with stereotypes that are extremely specific and also absolutely unchanging because it to me means like, it just sends me down a rabbit hole of trying to like track down like where each individual thing comes from because it is like, it's, it's every movie that does a beatnik scene. It's like, it's a smoky coffee house. There's a serious dude in a beret and sunglasses and a goatee. He's got a scroll of paper that he's reading like blank verse poetry off of while like a jazz band plays the bongos and then just like off to the side there's some woman with short hair in black leotards just sort of like flailing about dancing like barefoot maybe mm-hmm. and it's just like such a specific set of imagery yeah so part of why Kerouac later didn't like the term the beat generation is because of it being co I don't want to say co-opted but like the idea of and that look of beatnik being so tied to what they were actually doing. Mm. And so he was like, we're just getting defined, man. I don't like these labels. Right. Um, kind of pushing against it. Um, and the word beatnik is even like, like it's, it's not just like what the moms and pops call them. It's kind of meant to be like a put down. Absolutely. Because like the Nick part of it. And like, if you didn't know this from things like Dr. Robotnik and and other stuff that has that like ending, but that's coming from Sputnik, the Russian satellite from 1957. And I feel like the, the, you know, taking beat and Nick and putting it together is kind of like, yeah, we're putting you down. And we're also like vaguely insinuating that you're a bunch of commies. (laughs) Which is hilarious because there's nothing about communism in any of this. Right. It's all just like, it's counterculture. It's not communism. But, you know, the 50s were a time when anything counterculture did get labeled as communist. Like there were people calling Elvis Presley's hip gyrations when he danced communist. So at best, these stereotypes would be that comedic kind of figure. At worst, you had serial rapists, (laughs) such as in the 1959 
film noir, The Beat Generation, directed by Charles Haas, where a beatnik stalks and rapes married women, including the wife of the lead detective who is trying to figure out who this beatnik is. Um, And this wife, after that attack, conceives and is trying to decide, do I have an abortion? What do I do with this child? Eventually, the detective catches the beatnik and is like beating him up and is going to kill him and then goes like, no, I'm an upstanding moral person. I will not kill this serial rapist. And so he catches the beatnik and then it ends with the wife giving birth and all is well again in the social order. It was a budget of $439,000 and it made at the box office $750,000. That's fucking wild. And while we will not be watching that movie for the podcast, because it is a film noir uh, that came out this year, right? 1959. So these are the two stereotypes of, the beat generation and beatniks that are in the culture right now. I feel like it's sort of a similar thing that you see even today where the group that you're supposed to be afraid of, or like it's, it's, you know, the beatniks got turned into like something to sensationalize and uses like a scare tactic the same way that like the rock and rollers had been the same way that the hippies would be the same way that like woke activists and, and Tifa uh, are, are, are treated now. And it's like, it's that same rhetorical device of like the enemy must be simultaneously like ridiculous and silly and stupid, but also like threatening and, and scary. Right. Um, you have to feel a superiority complex over them while at the same time you need to put more money into the police department to deal with them. But I also wanted to mention that film because, uh, I have a feeling our friend Roger Corman is taking some inspiration from it. Well, I think 1959 must have been the moment when the beat scene had its mainstream like kind of breakthrough or maybe had its mainstream breakthrough like a year or two years earlier. And now this is when all the movies that they decided to make about it were coming out. Well, this is the year that Naked Lunch comes out. So right. it's it's in the news. Yeah. So this is like the peak of that movement. And so there were a number of these kind of overly sensationalistic, almost like exploitation you know, beat exploitation <laughs> movies coming out in 1959. Um, there was Beat Generation. There was also a movie called The Rebel Set, uh, which is about a bunch of beatniks who like go rob a bank and have car chases <laughs> and shit. Um, and like that stereotypical scene that we described is like in all of these movies. Like that's just what these people are. And Bucket of Blood, the movie we are watching tonight, is the same thing. However, there is something that makes Bucket of Blood very different from Beat Generation and Rebel Set, which are both much more like straight on crime drama, like be afraid of the rebel teens kind of movies. Um, And that is that Bucket of Blood is a comedy. Okay. Now, it is a horror comedy, but like, I'm going in here telling you right up front, it's a black comedy. And so why are we watching it for our episode of the show? Um, For one thing, 
I'm curious to have a discussion with you to see if you think there's enough horror in it to rank. But also, Bucket of Blood is like a fulcrum moment in Roger Corman's career Mm. and kind of changes his style of movie making. And that leads to later horror comedies and black comedies and kind of a more tongue-in-cheek attitude from Roger Corman in the future, most notably um, The Little Shop of Horrors, which like Little Shop of Horrors is straight up just a comedy. And it's something where I really want to cover that movie for the show, but it would definitely be for like a horror-adjacent episode, whereas this movie is kind of the beginning of that branching off. And so similar to kind of what we've done in the past with movies like Godzilla or um, Dark Eyes of London or like these movies where horror branched off into something else. I kind of want to cover this movie as that branching off point. Cool. So it has been a while since we checked in with our good pal, Roger Corman. Uh, The last picture we saw from him that was written and directed by him was 1957's The Undead back in episode 205. What episode is this? This is 281. Holy smokes, we're getting up there. Uh, So The Undead is currently ranked at number 118 on the list, which I think we're at, what, 270-something movies? I would guess 281, because that's how many episodes we have, Ben. (laughs) Ah, I know it's less than that. Um, (laughs) Since The Undead, Corman has directed a noir called Teenage Doll, a rock and roll musical called Carnival Rock, an exploitation picture called Sorority Girl, the adventure movie, The Saga of the Viking Women and Their Voyage to the Waters of the Great Sea Serpent, the sci-fi picture War of the Satellites, the prehistoric adventure movie Teenage Caveman, (laughs) the true crime drama Machine Gun Kelly, the adventure movie She Gods of Shark Reef, and the film noir I, Mobster. He also produced... Night of the Blood Beast, which we covered in episode 248 and is currently ranked at number 103. Uh, He also produced Crybaby Killer, which was like a teen exploitation movie and also the film debut of Jack Nicholson. And Stakeout on Dope Street, which was the directorial debut of Irvin Kirshner. So he's been a busy guy in the last two years. Uh, Machine Gun Kelly starred Charles Bronson. And it was like his first starring role. Oh, sweet. Because we saw him all the way back in House of Wax. And uh, it's based on like a real mobster. And it was the first film of Corman's to get good critical reviews. Oh, my God. And it attracted attention in like film journals like Cahiers de Cinema in France, which was like the beginning of like critics really looking at things like auteur theory and stuff Mm. like that and they were seeing corman as like a unique voice in american cinema you know so corman's like getting critical attention and praise for the first time in his career i mobster which is his movie right before this was released in january 1959 And it had a budget of $500,000 and was shot in CinemaScope for 20th Century Fox. Like, it was a real movie. Um, And Variety praised that film for its elements of black humor. Ah, I see the connection now. Yeah. So, in January of 1959, Corman and his brother Gene founded The Film Group. That's film group, all one word. 
you know, got to get that SEO. Um, <laughs> I didn't have SEO back then, Ben. The, the, There's no SE to O. The film group uh, was a company specializing in producing and distributing low-budget films for drive-ins and grindhouse theaters. And so this was Corman like deciding to get into the distribution uh, part of the game as well. But also, Corman could make films cheaper through Film Group than at AIP because AIP, you see, used union crews. Oh. And Film Group did not. The only union here is group. Yeah. Film Group used things like film students. Uh, oh, no. You know, oh, sure. In. They have a chock full of them down in LA now. Yeah. In 1959. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the film students who, you know, came up through the Corman Film School. But I just mentioned one of them, Irvin Kirshner. So anyways, this movie is not a film group movie, but I, I sort of threw in that. But, you know, just to let you know where Corman's at right yeah. now. In spring 1959, AIP approached Corman asking for a horror movie. Hey, man, it's time to do another one. Um, however, they did have three stipulations on him. Um, he had $50,000 to shoot it. Uh, he had five days to shoot it in. Oh, my God. And he had to reuse sets from Diary of a High School Bride. <laughs> okay. I mean, those aren't outlandish asks. So the fastest that Corman had shot a movie at this point was six days. Okay, so maybe one outlandish ask. And he thought to himself, all right, that sounds like an interesting challenge. And basically kind of agreed to do it on like almost treating it like a dare. Oh my God. Like you need to bring this movie in under $50,000 in five days. But he was not really interested in doing another horror picture. Um, He found that kind of boring. So he met up with his regular screenwriter, Charles Griffith. And, you know, they decided to talk out like, well, what can we do to make this different? And Griffith pitched Corman on the idea of doing a satirical black comedy about beatniks. And, you know, it's 1959. These are guys in their late 20s, early 30s who live in L.A. Like they know what beatniks are. Yeah, like they're hanging around this scene. Now, as I mentioned, uh, the films like Beat Generation and Rebel Set that came out in the same year were very sensationalistic very much treated beatniks as like a source of crime and corruption, um, but also as unknowable rebellious teens talking in nonsense slang, like very much similar to the teen movies we saw a couple of years earlier in the decade where it was like, they're rebelling, but who, who could possibly say what they're rebelling against? It, it doesn't make any sense. And the words they use are nonsense and the, you can't understand them because it's just silly bullshit, right? Like that kind of attitude. But Griffith wanted to do something different. He wanted to basically do a kind of like knowing satire. Like these were guys who had vaguely beatnik friends um, that they wanted to sort of poke fun at. Corman, however, was really anxious about the idea of trying comedy. Basically what he said to Griffith was that like, he doesn't want to do comedy because to do comedy, you have to be good. And they oh, don't have the, they don't have the time or money to be good because in order to be good, you have to either spend time or money and they don't have either of those. So like, it's better to just stick with action and like with straight horror or straight whatever, because 
you know, then you can just shoot it and it's fine. Griffith's counter argument to Corman was that the movie had such a low budget that like they couldn't lose basically. They couldn't lose. Like the, the, the argument was like that they were spending so little money on this that like the movie had to make a profit. Oh, just through like the numbers game. Basically <laughs> it was like, it was like, you know, it's, it Griffith's argument was like, this is extremely low stakes. So like, what have you got to lose by trying? I mean, that's a really good argument. Corman and... Do you want to live forever? Right, exactly. <laughs> so Corman and Griffith um, then spent a day hitting up beat coffee houses, um, observing the scene, spitballing the story back and forth to one another. And for the core of the like horror movie structure that they were going to hang their beat satire on, um, they basically took inspiration from... Mystery of the Wax Museum and its remake, House of Wax. So this is this is basically a House of Wax remake, but about beatniks. Okay. Um, and by the end of the day, they had their story. Spent a day on that. Four days left, boys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, Corman was really unsure of how to direct comedy. He'd never done it before and was like really nervous about it. And Charles Griffith... Uh, came from like a vaudeville family. Mm. Um, so he gave him the advice to just direct it as a straight horror picture, direct all the actors to give straight performances, play it all serious and just let the script take care of the jokes. That's a bold move. <laughs> so filming began uh, May 11th, 1959. So, you know, it ended May 16th, 1959. Um, but as filming began, Corman found himself, energized by the production he was in fact having fun and the set was like reportedly a very fun place to work like this energy of like oh let's just like have fun with it kind of permeated the set and it wasn't the like standard you know salt mine gulag that like a lot of Roger Corman sets were. Oh my goodness. Um, so he's really cooking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the lead actor uh, in this film is is regular Roger Corman character actor, Dick Miller. Mm. And he is playing the role of Walter Paisley. And he would go on to play Walter Paisley something like seven more times. Um, not the exact character, but like... Dick Miller, you know, appeared in all these Corman films. So the generation of directors who grew up on those movies, like Steven Spielberg and Joe Dante, would cast Miller in their movies as like a reference to those old Corman movies. And then people who liked Joe Dante or Steven Spielberg movies casted Miller as a reference to those things. And mm. that's how his career went. And so in these later castings in his career that were like very much based on like wink, wink, it's Dick Miller. Um, his character would be named Walter Paisley like over and over again, basically as an in-joke. Okay. Um, now, Dick Miller, we've talked about him before, but he's the lead actor in this one, so I figured I'd give a little bit about him again. He was born on Christmas Day, 1928, in the Bronx, and he was the son of Russian Jewish immigrants. During World War II, he served a tour with the Navy, and after World War II, he got a PhD in psychology from New York University. Holy shit. Yeah, especially given that, like, 
the persona that Dick Miller has as it's a so character blue actor. Collar. Yes, it's like the most blue collar guy. Um, but yeah, PhD in psychology. In 1952, he moved out to California to be a writer. He was not finding a lot of success with that. He was running out of money, so he started acting um, like as an extra. His first film was Roger Corman's Apache Woman in 1955, where he plays both a Native American character and a white townsfolk character. And in the final battle, his townsfolk character kills his native character with a gun, like in the battle scene. (laughs) Um, By 1959, Dick Miller had appeared in 11 movies. So 11 movies in four years. All of those movies were directed by Roger Corman. Um, But Bucket of Blood was actually the first time he was going to have a leading role. Like this is a guy whose past roles included like door-to-door vacuum salesman. Yeah. Who would Um, have like a scene. Right. Probably the reason why he finally got to have a lead role is just how low this movie's budget was. Like by 1959, you didn't have actors on studio contracts anymore. You couldn't loan people. Like all the actors are making their own deals and they're starting to become, you know, a lot more expensive to get a name. Now Miller was excited about the opportunity, obviously. Um, He felt that the script was good. The humor was good. He liked his co-stars. He felt Corman really directed the hell out of the movie. Um, And he felt the movie was like hitting at the right time to be topical. That basically it had all the makings of a classic. But for one thing, the low budget, which severely disappointed him um, due to the low production values Mm -hmm. it resulted in. So there's just, you know, he felt that if Corman had realized just like, what a good movie he had on his hands and maybe spent, you know, a little more money on things like makeup and special effects, then the movie could have been like much more than it is. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Miller's co-star in this film, Barbara Morris was a 27 year old LA native who was also a Corman regular. Uh, this was her seventh picture in the past two years, all of which were Roger Corman movies. Um, And she had just divorced her husband, theater director Monty Hellman. And during shooting on this picture, she began a brief affair with Corman. Later in her career, she turned to writing and became involved with the New Left movement. Um, I think her most famous piece of writing is something where she accuses Nixon of like conspiring to have this person murdered. Didn't he do that? So um, (laughs) actor Ed Nelson... (laughs) Uh, had produced and starred in The Brain Eaters the year before um, after a long stretch just doing like stunts for Corman. So he appears here. And um, 71-year-old actress Myrtle Vale, who appears in this film, had been a vaudeville and radio star in the 1930s and was also Charles Griffith's grandmother. So that's how (laughs) she got that part. Um, Nepotism. (laughs) (laughs) Corman brought the movie in under budget at... $35,000 in five days. Oh my God. Um, And he would later shoot Little Shop of Horrors in two days on the same sets for $27,500. So like what was left in the budget and schedule from this movie was what was used to do Little Shop of Horrors. Wow. AIP, instead of complaining about how Corman had conned them uh you know hey you got comedy in my horror picture um (laughs) they actually embraced it and structured the entire marketing around promoting the movie as a black comedy 
and they had like a poster featuring like Adam's family esque characters attending the movie in like various like one panel comics oh, kind of thing. Neat. Um, that give like no hints to what the movie's actually about. Basically, it's about a bucket of blood. Exactly. Um, AIP even ran a gag promotion where they said that customers who brought an actual bucket of blood to the theater could get in free. Nobody did this. Yeah. Carrie wasn't a thing yet. So (laughs) no one knew where to get a bucket of blood. Right. Um, Yeah. They just totally went with this kind of like mad magazine. Like, yeah, it's it's comedy kind of thing. Uh, The movie debuted on October 21st, 1959, and it made $150,000. Yeah, that's a good date. Yeah. That's a really good date for this. Uh, So it made, you know... A ton of money. Yeah, like... Just all the bread. (laughs) Three times its original budget. And uh, it was also critically well-received. Variety said that it had too much comedy to be horror and too much horror to be comedy but that it was sure to be a hit either way. Dick Miller got very good reviews for his performance, which was considered to have like a lot of pathos. Um, Calle de Cinema viewed the movie as Corman's self-portrait within the film industry. Um, Like (laughs) where he is this struggling artist who doesn't have like the resources to make good art and just has to like make do with what he has and is you know a slave to a wider kind of nonsense art world that doesn't understand him and just like uses him for profit Kaye de cinema saw this as like an autobiographical movie wild um others noted that its satire of beatniks felt more authentic than bigger studio pictures about the same subculture so yeah This movie got good critical reviews and was financially successful. The success of Bucket of Blood inspired Corman and Griffiths to continue to explore black comedy, notably in Little Shop of Horrors, um, but also led to them like inserting more of a tongue-in-cheek attitude into their other movies as well, um, which kind of then started to tie in with the 60s cultural movement towards like camp. Yes. And stuff like that. Poking fun at like the genre as well. Exactly. Where like you're doing a horror movie, but like you are also making fun of horror movies at the same time. Now, Bucket of Blood was never copyrighted because Corman just, he just didn't think these movies were going to last. He figured they'd play at the drive-in for, you know, a couple months and then they'd get thrown in the trash and no one would want to talk about them in 50 years. So he never just, he never bothered with paying to have them copyrighted. So, you know, it is fully in the public domain as the years went on and it got this like cult classic reputation. Um, Corman actually went on this little spree in the late eighties, early nineties of like remaking uh, some of his old movies or at least producing remakes of some of his old movies. Uh, With this, uh, Corman produced a TV movie remake in 1995, starring Anthony Michael Hall in the Dick Miller role. It was directed by Michael McDonald. And the point of these remakes that he did at that time was to like try and get some thing under that, you know, hit movie from the 50s title that he actually had the rights to and could make money off of. So we're going to be watching A Bucket of Blood on YouTube. Uh, For physical media, my recommendation is that you go with the Olive Signature Edition Blu-ray from 2019. Well, folks, if you want to join us on the fun, you can find our YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.com. 
You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss A Bucket of Blood from 1959, directed by Roger Corman. Take it away, Daddy-O. <laughs> It'll be a gas. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching A Bucket of Blood from 1959, directed by Roger Cool Cat Corman. <laughs> uh, what did you think, Ben? What are your first thoughts? Um, so, I mean, this is just legitimately a good movie. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. I think people should watch this movie. The Bucket of Blood is not a major or significant element in the movie at all but it it is there it is there which is better than some movies yeah yeah i just i think this is good i think it's a good movie i don't know if you want to get into this in the discussion but one quote that you gave from a critic was that like it was too comedic to be horror and Mm. too horror to be comedy right what do you think i think that's something we're gonna have to hash out in the discussion but what i will say about that critic comment which like really expressed a lot of like the feelings around this movie at the time is I think a lot of that comes from the fact that like black humor like this macabre humor like this was not common in the Mm. culture in 1959. Whereas we live in a post young Frankenstein world. I mean, we live in a post like, (laughs) like we live in a post Adams family world, but we also like, just like our comedy has pushed so many boundaries that I think that from a modern perspective, no one would bat an eyelash at this movie. And I don't mean that in the way of like, oh, well, it's not edgy. I mean that in the way of like, no one would be confused about what this movie is trying to do. Yeah. Uh, Well, to clear up any other confusion, let me go through the synopsis. So for the most part, we are set at the Yellow Door Cafe, and we follow a busboy named Walter Paisley, who wants to be a beat artist. Uh, Maxwell Brock is a poet. And when we come into the film, he's performing and Walter really looks up to Maxwell. And that part of that is because Maxwell um, espouses the philosophy of the beat generation. First line in the movie is let us talk about art for there is nothing else to talk about. Yeah. It's, really like spot on uh to a hilarious extent maxwell also says how the artist is the only thing that is alive uh it is a moral good to be an artist and the world must sustain the artist yeah like the role of everyone who's not an artist is to be like either the subject for an artist or like the support for an artist in some way Now, Walter has ordered some clay to become a sculptor, but he doesn't actually know what he's doing. But, you know, he's giving it his best shot. We have heard that his landlady's cat, Frankie, is missing. And, you know, he hears Frankie stuck in the wall because, you know, cats be getting stuck in walls. Mm -hmm. Now, Walter isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. So to help Frankie out of the drywall, he goes and he takes a knife and he puts it through the wall. And 
stabs and kills Frankie. He is sad about it. He is remorseful. And he's, he decides he's going to return Frankie to his landlady in the morning. But when he wakes up, he gets this like burst of creativity and decides that uh, for this cat to be immortal, I will encase it in clay. Yeah, I think this this really comes from like the whole Maxwell thing of like other people are just like grist for the mill of art kind of thing where it's like, oh, well, the cat's death won't be in vain if it's for art. Exactly. Yeah. So he creates a sculpture with the clay around the cat body uh, and the knife (laughs) and names it Dead Cat. Now he brings it to the cafe and the piece is a really big hit, particularly with Carla, who also works at the cafe uh, and Walter has a pretty big crush on. We do see that there are some cops undercover at the cafe because this is, you know, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Um, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like they're trying to catch heroin dealers and there's definitely heroin dealers in this cafe. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so there's some cops undercover at this cafe. One of them is named Lou and he happens to see as an admirer of Walter's work named Neolia goes up to Walter and she's like, you're so creative. I just want to be with you. And Walter's like, oh, uh, no, uh, no, thank you. She's like, but there must be something good I must do for you. And she decides to give him a vial of heroin. Um, now, Walter doesn't really know what that is. He's just like, oh, she, what is this? Okay. And puts it in his pocket and leaves. Lou follows him home and then confronts Walter like, hey, I see you have heroin. You're going to tell me who... You sell this to, you're going to tell me who your contact is, all these things. And Walter's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what this is. Lou goes to arrest him and Walter is holding up a frying pan in defense. Like, no, don't shoot me. Don't hurt me. And hits Lou over the head with the frying pan and breaks open his skull. Mm -hmm. The bucket of blood comes from uh, Walter's landlady being like, hey, Walter, I'm hearing some weird noises. And... Walter quickly hides the body in like the roof in the kitchen. Yeah, like in the rafters. And um, once he gets the landlady out, uh, Lou's arm kind of like falls down and is bleeding. So Walter puts a bucket underneath like as if his roof is leaking. Yeah. And it slowly fills up with a getting stronger stream of blood. Yeah. As Walter's like, what the fuck am I going to do with a body? (laughs) I know, clay, yada, yada. Meanwhile... The owner of the cafe, Leonard, bumps into the cat that has been on display and it falls down and it breaks open a little bit. And he sees that there is fur underneath and he puts two and two together and he's like, oh shit, Walter killed a cat and encased it in clay. This isn't good. I need to go tell the police. And as he's on his way, someone comes up to him and is like, hey, I'll buy that piece for a hundred dollars. And he's like, no. No, I need, where, where's a dime? I need to call the police. And the guy's like, fine, you drive a hard bargain, $500. And Leonard's like, $500, huh? <laughs> Interesting. Which is like five grand nowadays. I mean, if someone offered me $500 for a sculpture, I would absolutely take that money. Yeah, so if someone offered you $5,000 for a sculpture? I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Now, this means that Leonard is particularly concerned when Walter comes in and says that he has a new piece. And he brings Leonard and Carla over to his flat to see it. And it is named the Murdered Man. Mm. Leonard is like, oh, God, oh, fuck, oh, God. Listen, Walter, you really got to stop making realistic pieces. Um, Maybe you should turn to free form. And Carla and everyone else is like, no, like you can't stifle his creativity. Like he's an artist. You can't tell him what he has to do next. Yeah. Everyone thinks that these, you know, murder sculptures are brilliant. Just the most amazing things. His grasp of human anatomy, Benjamin. Now that evening, someone comes into the cafe. Her name is Alice. And uh, she has just gotten back from a vacation, so she hasn't heard about Walter's sculptures or anything. And she kind of just mocks him. She's like, no, you'll never be more than a busboy. Like, you're just some guy. Your sculptures are shit. And Walter doesn't like that. So he follows her home and says, like, well, how about you be my model for the next sculpture? Uh, And so he kills her and turns her into his next piece. Um, strangled woman and um, I mean he's very on the nose with the names right like yeah no for sure but like it is very funny like how those are just like the perfect names for these sculptures though like you you can totally buy that that is how the art world would respond you know what I mean oh absolutely absolutely like that someone would be like that you would make a statue of a strangled woman and then call it strangled woman and then someone would be like that's brilliant uh and then um one night coming home from the cafe he's like oh man and oh so he's drunk at this point he's like oh man like everyone loves my shit I'm so hip isn't this great and they're all asking like what am I going to do next Oh, God, what am I going to do next? And he passes by a carpenter working very late hours. Walter starts saying, like, ah, but you see, like, people serve the artist. Mm -hmm. It's a moral good for them to do so. And so he dismembers the carpenter and thus creates a uh, a bust of a headless man, I think is what he calls that one. Or is it like the severed head? Or something Maybe, like that. Maybe it might be the severed head. It's it's yeah, it's pretty wild. He basically severs this guy's head with the like buzz saw that he's using to like cut wood. Uh and he shows this bust to Leonard in the morning as Leonard is overhearing a nearby newsie being like, Extra extra, carpenter dismembered down street. Yeah. Head missing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So Leonard is like, Walter, please, I need you to not be doing any more sculptures, please. I'm starting to feel responsible. And the reason he feels responsible is because he told Walter he would eventually do an art show for his work. Uh, So he's like, okay, well, let's host that party then. And then no more sculptures. Okay, please. And Walter's like, that sounds great. It's the night of the event. And Walter goes over to Carla's place where she's living in a commune basically with all of the other beat generation uh and he walks over to the party with her because he has this really big crush on her since he's started being a sculptor uh carla has been like super praising of his work and his talent and she even like kissed him at one point uh because she was so like amazed by his talent so he's like yeah i I think you love me and i think we should get married so i can stop being a sculptor and so she lets him down easy but he takes it pretty hard he takes it pretty hard 
And so he's like, well, then just let me at least make a sculpture out of you. And she's like, oh, I would be so honored and happy for you to do that. Not thinking, oh, no, I will be dead. Yeah. I The thing I love about Walter, so it's really clear that he really only wants to be an artist to get Carla's approval, right? Which is why it's like, oh, and well, Maxwell's. Yeah. But it's like, if Carla marries him, he doesn't have to be an artist anymore, right? Yeah. But what I love about the way that he talks about making people into statues is he never like lies to anyone. Like th- that's the phraseology he uses. Like I'll make you into a statue. And you know, people just take that to mean like, I'll be the model for the statue that you will make. But he means it totally literally. And yeah, I just, I just kind of, there's something almost charming about Walter's kind of lack of awareness of mm-hmm. what he's doing. Um, it's funny that you say lack of awareness because a running gag throughout the film is Maxwell being like, well, you're just not aware. Mm. You're just not aware right. about art and the world. Yeah. And you're just not aware. So they head to the party. And while there, Carla notices that there's some clay coming off of Alice's hand and that there's a real hand underneath. And so she freaks out and starts to go towards the phone to call the police. And Walter's like, Carla, are you okay? And she's like, Walter, there's a body in your sculpture. And he's like, yeah, no, that's Alice. She, she's the strangled woman. She's my sculpture. And she's like, ah, get the fuck away from me. And starts running down the street. And he starts running after her. Other patrons, including Leonard, um, the other cop, whose name I didn't catch, and uh, the poet Maxwell, also notice that there are bodies in these sculptures. And, and they start breaking them apart. Yeah, well, because the other cop recognizes that it's Lou. <laughs> yeah. And so then they, they go chasing after Walter. As Walter is chasing down Carla, he begins to hear like these voices in his head. And they're the voices of the people who he murdered saying like, Walter, you can't hide from us. You should just go home. And um, like, there's no point, just go home. And so he eventually stops chasing Carla in kind of like this like manic mode um, and starts heading home just as like the cops catch up to where Carla is and then following Walter uh, to his house. Once alone in his house, Walter's like, well, they're coming after me. I don't know what to do. The voices keep getting louder. And he's like, I know, I'll go where they can't find me. And then just as everyone arrives into his flat, they find him hanged with clay on his face. Uh, And Maxwell says something poetic, like, he would have called this the hanged man, I suppose. His most magnificent work. Yeah. The end. So it's very much like Mystery of the Wax Museum, as you said at the beginning. It has some vibes that were from a Rondo Hatton flick that we watched. Mm. Um, I think it was called House of Horrors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it also had a sculptor. Yeah, it's, I mean, sculpture sculptors making weird shit that are like demonic or evil or dead We've bodies. We've been to this well a few times. A few times, even going back to like The Magician in 1926. Like it's, right. it's a tried and true um, <laughs> path. Uh, so it wasn't like a huge surprise here. And I think they did a fairly good job here. So yeah, like the writing for this movie is very good. Yes. Um, it is on point satire. If you know nothing about beatniks, like you don't know anything about no Jack Kerouac or nothing. I think as long as you've spent 
any amount of time in any kind of like insular indie arts community, you will recognize every character in this movie. It's so eerie. Like how accurate some of this shit is. It's it's accurate to like it's an accurate skewering of the beatniks. But if you updated the lingo, it would be you could do this for hippies. You could do this for like punks. You could do this for basically like any major arts related counterculture movement. You know, if this came out in 2009, it would be like the indie folk rock scene. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. These guys would be talking about how like, oh, he's much better live, you know, like, (laughs) um, and, and, and yeah, like the fact that it's so on point and so apt um, helps a lot with the dialogue because <laughs> I feel like the number one failing of a lot of these like sensationalistic like, oh, the teens is that the, the attempt at teen slang from adult writers almost always sounds terrible. Yeah. And I was not there in 1959. I do not know if anyone talked like this in 1959, but being someone who, you know, had his own period of like slang and like my age groups slang, the way people talk in this sound like the way people talk, like it sounds like legitimate uses of slang language rather than just some like rando nonsense coming from like an old trying to, to seem young. Even down to, the performances we see. So we Mm -hmm. see Maxwell perform poetry twice. Mm -hmm. We see two musical performances. Um, The first one being like a guy with a guitar being like, murderers are terrible people. But also kind of cool because I'm singing about them. And uh, Walter's just like, yeah, I didn't just murder a guy and turn him into a statue. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. It was like legitimately good stuff like the stuff maxwell was saying like it fit both the beat generation it fit any kind of insular art Mm -hmm. movement and what that ethos tends to be it also made sense for the movie yeah it fit the themes yeah it was was like yeah it hit the perfect trifecta of all of those yeah like the writing is just very good it's very good satire you can tell that these are people who know beatniks who are skewering them Mm -hmm. and like shout out to the actors who would be playing the beatniks here Mm. like i mean from the people who are playing like the bum yeah version of beatniks all the way up to maxwell playing the like uh is this organic yes kind of level of art person that is a joke he literally says yeah Yeah. um but yeah like the the druggy guys The druggy guys yes. like feel totally on point. Like they don't feel like a weird caricature of, you know, drug users. They feel like, no, like I've met guys like that. Like yeah. I have a hundred percent met guys like that. And then there's even people in the cafe who are like squares. Yes. Who are not part of this movement who are here because they are being basically tourists. Yeah. Um, and they mock them too. Like yeah, it's really well done. It's so apt. Um, the other thing that the movie gets really right is the character psychology of Walter. Yeah, I was very impressed with that and very impressed with Dick Miller's performance. Yeah, uh, Walter's lonely, he's ignored, he's ostracized, he's a romantic dreamer, 
He has kind of a loose grip on reality and he's like fixated on like, you know, he wants Carla to like him. He also wants just like everyone's approval. He keeps killing and making these sculptures because he thinks that, you know, if he stops, this is the only thing that makes people like him. Yeah. And if he stops doing it, they'll forget about him and stop liking him. Again, if this was a modern movie, we would call him like an incel type, right? Like, sure. He's red pilled, man. Like, well, I I feel like you're using some politically charged language there. I would say that like when he's on stage and they're celebrating him, mm-hmm. and Maxwell gives like a a poem about like everyone knows that Walter has been born, right? Um, because of like his like his soul is pure because of his art. Yeah. Um, it really reminded me of that scene in. Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh yeah. When Quasimodo is being held up. And, and I stuff. think that's totally on purpose yeah. because they do the thing where like when they have this party in Walter's honor, they give him like the crown and like the little thing, like fake scepter to hold. And it's the exact like King of Fools thing. Yeah. So I think you're like, you know, you're meant to be drawing those comparisons and yeah, like I think the writing here is really on the mark for, you know, if you want to understand where, like incel serial killers are coming from. But also, like you said, Dick Miller gives this great performance. And I think the thing that he and the directing do that's really like walking a fine tightrope is making Walter believable. Yes. Likeable and pitiable. Like you, you understand why he is the way he is you kind of feel sorry for him. You feel sympathy for him. He's kind of, you know, you can't really hate him because he's kind of like, he doesn't really know what he's doing. And the movie somehow manages to make Walter kind of bumbling his way into murdering some people and then deciding that the thing to do would be to encase them in clay. Like the movie somehow makes that train of thought seem logical yeah multiple times and slightly endearing yeah and like exactly until he goes and like actively kills then like once he kills alice then it's like okay no like we're in in my opinion horror movie territory yeah yeah. um but when it was just like no get away from me whack with the pan oh no a dead body what should i do i know yeah and and miller's performance as walter somehow manages to make like the naivete of the character believable of this like well you know i turned him into sculptures <laughs> like i will say we looked this up dick miller is 31 mm-hmm. in this movie um i believe his character is supposed to be at most 25 and so that's the like i i would say well so walter has his own apartment yeah and he's kind of supposed to be like a loser and, and it is one of those things of like the character to me came across as like young, primarily because of the way that he's like this naive bus boy mm-hmm. working this minimum wage job, like looking up to the artists and stuff. But if he is meant to be in his 30s, I think that still works because I think it reinforces the fact that like his character is meant to be kind of a little mentally challenged. Sure, I see what you're saying. I guess for me, it's like, I don't read Dick Miller as the age that 
Walter is supposed to be. I mean, I don't even read him as 31. I'm 32 yeah. and I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, yeah, that guy's in his 40s, right? Right. Like, he, I mean, it's a part problem. of it is like my first encounter with Dick Miller is him as an old person. Yeah. Right. In Deep Space Nine. And he looks exactly the same here. Just his wrinkles aren't as deep, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, it's like, it's like, you know, yeah, he doesn't have the wrinkles and his hair's not gray, but he's the same guy. Yeah. Right? His voice is uh, a little lighter. Yeah. Um, which is really, I think he does a, a really good job. No, absolutely. And I think his character actor strengths mm. really help him here uh, in, you know, getting across how awkward and, you know, inside himself Walter is because I think a more traditional leading actor would probably have been tempted to make Walter a little more normal. Yes. Whereas Miller like gives him a lot of like weird sort of, you know, ticks and the way he walks and the way he kind of goes about things where you can like tell that, yeah, this guy's, you know, supposed to be fitting this archetype of this kind of like loser guy um, I think people might have also been tempted, people as in like other directors or writers would have been tempted to make this role into a straight man to the mm, beatniks. Right. And that would have made this film not work at all. Yeah. And the other thing that I think works really well here is we can sympathize mm -hmm. with Walter's, you know, desire for Carla to accept him and love him. But the movie never tries to put us on his side about it. Like, it's clear that, you know, for one thing, Carla's not interested. But also, like, you know, when he's trying to pursue her, that, like, he's in the wrong. There isn't any confusion about that. Yeah. The active camera mm. was really awesome. We had a lot of really fantastic lighting and dynamic lighting. Yeah, for something shot in five days, yeah. uh, Corman and the cinematographer Jacques Marquette really knock it out of the park here. Like, there were moments, even during, like, the chase scene, mm -hmm. that they were finding ways to make it more dynamic than just, okay, camera's up, everyone run past. Okay, set up in another location, everyone run past. Um, there's even a few, like, close-up reactions during the chase that they would have had to, like, okay, let us be set up to be a close-up. All right, the movie, ready, go. Yeah, the movie looks great. The direction is spot-on. The chase scene, like you pointed out, like they find ways to do depth yeah. and dynamics in the space, but also like the movie does a lot of really clever stuff, like how in the first murder scene, when Walter kills the cat, he's hearing the cat meowing and he goes to get the knife and he bonks his head on like the overhead light in his apartment on his way into the mm -hmm. kitchen, which sends it like swinging wildly around which then gives the scene this very like dramatic lighting where things go from, you know, in light to in shadow as the light moves that fits the like dramatic nature of the scene of this like, oh shit, I've, you know, killed the cat, but was motivated by like kind of a, a goofy slapstick moment, right? Absolutely. Um, even when like he takes the cat and puts it on the table, the position of a mirror in that scene means that when... Walter moves, then suddenly we see this dead animal, mm -hmm. like full on, just like moments like that. Yeah, like Corman knows what he's doing here. It's really clear. Like this is not something where, well, they threw a bunch of stuff together really fast and accidentally ended up with something good. No, like this 
this was done on purpose. Yeah, I think it was the right call to have Corman shoot this straight. Mm -hmm. And I think Corman has far more directing talent than he gives himself credit for. Absolutely. The argument that Cahiers de Cinema made about this movie was basically that Corman is Walter. Yeah. And like, you know, that he is, which I oddly I think makes Cahiers de Cinema Maxwell (laughs) <laughs> but um, but the argument was that, like, Leonard was AIP. Yeah. Like, these guys who don't really understand what this person is doing, but are willing to make money off it, right? I, I can see where they're coming. Mm-hmm. But as is often the case with some critics, sometimes you just need to take a step back mm. and rethink your analogy a little bit. But right. um, I do like the idea of... Like, Walter doesn't see the value in his work. Mm. He's like, yeah, I made a cat. You like it? You really think it's good? Yeah, he doesn't believe it. Yeah, and people are like, no, you have talent. And I feel like that fits Roger Corman yeah. a bit. He's like, well, overnight I made this movie Yeah. in a fucking week. Yeah, because that's the other thing about Walter that's like Roger Corman is everyone's like, how did you make an entire sculpture in a night? And I mean, it's because he's just taking bodies and covering them in clay. But like, that's Roger Corman, right? It's like, how did you make this movie in a week? And it's like, oh, because I, I took I took some old sets from a movie that had just wrapped up shooting and some actors who were hanging around and I just threw something together. Yeah. And it's like, this is really good, Roger. Um, I mean, part of it, too, uh, for why I'm like kind of side eyeing the Cahiers du Cinema's perspective is because I uh, side eye auteur theory. Sure. As you said, the writing makes this movie work, and Roger didn't write this. Yeah, absolutely. I think my only real complaint about this movie is similar to Dick Miller's complaint about this movie, which is it's a shame that the prop statues aren't more convincing. I do think that, like, the faces done for them are pretty good and, like, honestly are believable that the art world would be like, oh, what a unique piece. Um, but the bodies are mannequins and really clearly mannequins and the cat statue, you can tell like what the writer was going for in the script because the dialogue is still people being like, look how realistic it is and look how you can see the reflection. And like, clearly what the writer was thinking in his head was like that the, you know, clay over top the body would be sort of very form fitting, I guess, like very one-to-one, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas these, besides the faces, look a little bit more like like Pompeii figures. Yeah, yeah. I definitely see what you're saying, but there is some kind of like, of course beatniks would be like, oh, this is like an amazing thing mm. and it's actually not good at all, Sure, you know? The other thing that Miller felt was a shame, and I agree with him, is that um, I guess the final shot, wasn't really given the time that he felt it should have needed. Um, He was supposed to be like his face was supposed to be covered in clay, but they didn't have time to apply the clay. So I I guess what happened was they just put gray makeup Mm. on his face, which the problem with that then is as the lighting in the shot shifts, sometimes you can see it, but sometimes you can't because it's a black and white movie and it doesn't really get across the idea that he's encased himself in the clay very well. And so it, the, the final shot of him hanging 
doesn't quite land with, I think, the horror intended. Um, and Miller felt like, you know, that's your last shot in the movie. Like, you should fucking spend time on it. But it was very much a kind of like, well, no, that's all the time we have. We got to wrap. We got to get on to the next thing. That's the thing, though. You didn't have to wrap. Yeah. You had a few more days. Yeah. Yeah. He got it in under time and under budget, which does make Miller's complaints about Corman kind of cutting himself off at the kneecaps with his sort of miserliness, like ring a little true. Yeah. Right. Where it's like you had a low budget and you brought it in for even less than that. Like you could have, you know, mm-hmm. spared a dime here or there. One last thing I need to say about this movie. Mm. You know, our major complaint about 4D man being the music. Right. It works so well here. Yes. And I think it's because of the beatnik scene. Yeah. Like we're explicitly dealing with this jazzy subculture. So the fact that the entire movie is scored that way fits so well. Absolutely. Whereas 4D man, it was like out of nowhere. We we work in a factory. Why is there like a saxophone going ham? So I feel like we're ready to transition into the thing I brought up earlier. Mm -hmm. Is this too horror to be comedy and too comedic to be horror? This, I think from a 2023 perspective, in my opinion, this is a comedy. And I think genre confusion about this movie exists because of the fact that this kind of movie didn't really exist in 1959. But if you compare this to like Death Becomes Her or like So I Married an Axe Murderer and stuff like that, I think it hits a similar note. It does have some effective pure horror moments um, like when Walter goes after Carla in the finale. But I think that comes from the fact that Corman is shooting the movie straight. Mm. He's lighting it and directing it and shooting it like a horror movie. But the performances and the script make it clear that this is a comedy. Um, And I think that, you know, if you had a different actor playing Walter, like if Walter was played by like Crispin Glover instead of Dick Miller, (laughs) you know, or someone like that, that would make it more horror because Walter would kind of go from like, lovable doofus to like sincerely creepy in a interesting way. But in my opinion, I think this is a comedy. It's just a comedy that people weren't used to in 1959. Like it's, it's a black comedy, but I am willing to hear an argument that it's enough horror to rank if you feel strongly. So I feel like this is horror. Mm. It's definitely comedic horror, but the fact that the, emphasis was constantly on where is the violence Mm. and the way that like someone stumbles into violence is Mm. very funny if it had just stayed that way then yeah it's a comedy but when he turns to killing carla and then when he goes after the carpenter just like Mm. some random dude who's working late hours because he's maybe not unionized like (laughs) i think that's when it's like no this is a horror movie, absolutely. I think it, it at the very least, it shows that Corman understands that the line between comedy and horror is very thin and it's all in how you kind of frame it because, you know, it's the same function of, it's the same formula of like setup release. It's yes. just, you know, in one, the release is a laugh and the other is a scream. We've talked about this before. 
Yeah. And even just thinking about the carpenter scene, like it's like, oh no, he's shoving that guy's neck into the saw. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing we see is here's my severed headpiece and Leonard's horror at like, oh God, they, this is the carpenter we just heard about yeah. as like, but like that scene is funny. That's yeah. a comedy scene. Yes. But we're also there with Leonard's like when he's like, I'm feeling responsible. Mm. Like you can cut like, it's like, it's both like it's black comedy and yeah. you know, Leonard is legitimately horrified, but the actor plays the reactions broad enough for them to be comedy reactions and then the way he turns around and is like, you know, okay, we're going to do the show for Walter so that that can be his grand finale and then it's, it's done. But like he's still making money off this show, right? I do think there is a bit of a switch in tone in the movie when he kills the model and Alice, onwards. Yeah, 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 from Alice onwards because Alice is the first one killed with malice. Yeah, I think earlier I said Carla... I meant when he kills Alice. Yeah, because it's Alice and then the carpenter and then the attempt on Carla. Yes. Yeah, and there is definitely a switch there. We probably could have held a little longer for the fear and horror for the patrons when they realize mm -hmm. what's in the sculptures. Yeah. But we hear screams. We get a close-up of the bus girl freaking out and people like running around and stuff, like getting into action. And I suspect that the fact that we don't really hold on that scene very long has less to do with like, well, but this is a comedy and more to do probably with the fact that like, given how they did the sculptures as like mannequins and stuff, they didn't have the time, money, know how to do like a shot of like cracking apart a clay sculpture and there being like a dead body inside which would be a really horrific sight like they just don't have the ability to do it so it's like oh we'll just have everyone scream and cut to the next thing and that's not a we'll spare the audience the horror that's just i didn't have the money yeah <laughs> well, i think the fact that they aren't worried about sparing the audience is really hit home when at the end like the final scene is us on walter's dead hanged face yeah for sure absolutely and like the bars even change to make it vertical and then they go back to widescreen yeah exactly yeah they they vignette it which is super rare um very visually effective like again like corman knows what he's doing here like this is not an accident um yeah and so for those reasons i i believe that this is horror it's definitely still comedy but I think this is okay, horror and you, I think it ranks. Okay, you think there's enough in here to rank it? Well, where were you looking then? Well, I'm worried, Ben. Okay. I do have a little range picked out okay. uh, in case you manage to talk me into it. Well, I looked at our highest ranking Roger Corman movie, mm -hmm. which is It Conquered the World in 1956, which is the <laughs> it's That Conquered, conquered the, the World? world? Yeah, I was just... Yeah. <laughs> That's how I remember that one. Yeah. I think... This is way better. Yeah. Because it's it's been three years. Roger Corman has like, what, 50 films under his belt right. by now? Um, he has grown so much as a director. Yeah, it's just a better made movie, period. Yeah. yeah. And like the writing as well. Like that, the movie It Conquered the World had good writing. Mm. That's always been like Corman's saving grace, I think. Even for like the ones that we've watched of his that didn't rank. Yeah. I think A Bucket of Blood is better than that. Yeah. Looking up, so that's at 83. Okay. 
looking up, my eyes came to dementia at mm-hmm. 70 from 1955. Right. And this felt very similar in that way of I, like I low guess. budget. Yeah. Sure. Shadowy the, 1950s alleyways. And like an emphasis on being in the club and stuff. Dementia is like far more nightmarish. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, well, it's not going above dementia. The other thing that is over here is our favorite friend, Vampire Cowboy, mm. Curse of the Undead, right? which is another genre blend. And I was like torn because Vampire Cowboy, you get it. Beatnik serial killer sculpture, sculptor. How much of that do you need to have like a context for what the beatniks are and sure. stuff? Whereas like Vampire Cowboy, you got it. The thing about Curse of the Undead is that, and I I probably said this in the episode, but structurally, it's much more a Western than it is a horror because it's, you know, the bad gunslinger in town and we got to, you know, have the good gunslinger come in and defend the ranch and blah, 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 right? Whereas I think Bucket of Blood, because Corman's done horror before, and also because they, they picked a specific horror movie to kind of hang the trimmings on. Yeah. The structure here is horror movie. The structure is horror. The emphasis is comedy, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas I think curse of the undead, the structure was Western and the emphasis was horror. So I'm, I'm honestly inclined to say if this thing is going on the list, it should go above curse of the undead. Okay. Now, because I know some folks might uh, yell about it. Um, The tingler from castle is below that at 74. I think Bucket of Blood is better because I was disappointed by the Tingler. I feel like above Curse of the Undead, but below Dementia and below The Abominable Snowman, which is below Dementia, um, is probably a really good spot. So I'm just going to briefly tell you where my range was. Yeah. Um, although what I will say is I'm I'm going to come to your range because I sort of don't think this should have ranked and your range is lower than mine. So I'd rather err on the side of caution and rank this a little lower. I ranked this up in the fifties. Interesting. Uh, my range was 56 to 59. And the reason that happened is instead of going looking for Corman, I went looking for where is mystery of the wax museum and house of wax. And I, I found House of Wax at 59 and I like this movie better than House of Wax. I think this movie is smarter than House of Wax. I think this movie has more going for it than House of Wax. And then I basically made my way up and saw The Screaming Skull at 55, which is not as well made as this movie, but is much more of a horror movie than this movie. Yeah, I'm going to have to say... I feel good about you coming down because mm-hmm. like house of wax. Well, at the end of the day, even if I think this is a better movie, house of wax is a better horror movie. Yeah. And that's the standard by which we rank things on this list. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, looking at where you want this, I'm totally cool with putting this above curse of the undead and below the abominable snowman. Yeah, and the reason why I feel like it shouldn't go above Abominable Snowman is because of the level of, like, controlled tension yes. that movie manages to have. 
Um, Because the thing about both comedy and horror is that management of that tension, Mm -hmm. right? Both involve a release, but how long can you hold it? How long can you edge? Sure. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I, I, but I agree with you for the same reasons. Yeah. Okay. So entering the list at the new number 72 is A Bucket of Blood from 1959, directed by Roger Corman. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Leaving the show a rating or a review helps the show be promoted by algorithms. Uh, If you want to bypass algorithms, you can tell a friend about the show post about it on social media if you want to make sure you never miss an episode you can subscribe to our rss feed and if you want to help the show out financially uh you can do that by heading on to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast we really appreciate all the support we get through there um that helps us with you know putting the show on every week uh hosting cost but also just like the time that we put in it's just really nice. <laughs> um, if you join at the $1 a month level, you'll get thanked on the show. If you join at $5 a month, you're going to get regular bonus audio. And if you join at $10 a month, you're going to get like all kinds of stuff, um, essays and short stories. And it's mostly writing. Writing is what you get at $10 a month. But patrons of any level get to vote in our monthly polls to determine what our horror adjacent bonus episode will be that month this month's is them but april's poll is still up and still running last i checked abbott and costello meet the invisible man was in the lead it's a selection of horror comedies you see it is very tight between abbott and costello meet the invisible man and the 1939 the cat and the canary interesting okay so are you a bob hope person or are you an abbott and costello person Make your voice heard. Join the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. Well, Ben, what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we are watching the AIP Roger Corman produced but not directed B-movie to this uh, that, you know, played on the same double feature. It's Attack of the Giant Leeches. Gross. Leeches (laughs) are gross. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.